John 20, verses 30 to 31. This is a theme. John's done a remarkably helpful job of just putting it in clear terms. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. This is why we often say we do not have the truth about God exhaustively. We do not have everything there is to know about the Lord in his word. John tells us in chapter 21 that all the books in the world wouldn't be big enough to contain it all. There was not enough room on the planet for all the truth about God to be written. But what we do have is exactly what he intended for us, that we might obey him. You saw that a couple weeks ago in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things that are revealed are given to us. Why? That we and our sons might obey his every word. That's the revealed will of God. It's his word. It's what he has intended for us to know and understand. The secret will of God enables us to have the ability to look back and say, oh, that was the will of God because it happened. That's the secret things of God, the decreed will of God. And the meshing place between those realities is in the heart of God. And you and I don't need to understand it. He has not given us the kind of explanation to understand it that we could communicate it in such a way that it's simple. But we know there are the secret things of God, and we know there are the revealed things of God. Back to John 20, verse 31, and this is really where you and I must commit ourselves. But these are written. These are written. If you have Roman Catholic friends, they will tell you, yeah, you, you know, Jesus didn't really do any writing. Um, the tradition is really where it's at. We walked you through Mark 7 last week where Jesus really cuts at the core of the Pharisees by pointing out to them that they're all committed to their tradition. That's their favorite term. He says, Isaiah rightly prophesied of you that you honor me with your lips. You know, you and I did that at one time in our lives if we were false converts. Many of us were false converts for a while. We honored him with our lips. We said things so that other people would be convinced we were committed to the Lord. And maybe we were persuasive, maybe we weren't. Of course, the Lord wasn't persuaded. We honored him with our lips. And he says that, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And eventually, everybody who knows you knows that about you, if that's true about you. And he boils it down to this. You make the traditions of men out to be what? You remember it, Mark 7? The commandments of God. So you develop a system, and you superimpose upon it some sort of biblical title, and you make it out to be the Word of God. And so Jesus really condemned not just the Pharisees, but anybody and everybody who would do that. His call is to look exclusively at that which has been written. This is why we say we are committed to the plenary reality of Scripture. Plenary meaning all of it equally valuable. It's equally inspired. Every word, every jot, every tittle, it is inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It will not return void. It is the Word of God. Easy for us to say that phrase, isn't it? The word of God, and really kind of forget what that means. The God of creation, the God who created the heavens and the earth, he's given us his word. That's huge. 
And yet, you might at times find your Bible in a rumpled mess in some corner somewhere, rather than remembering that's the very word of the one who created me, having created me for his glory. I need to know him. I need to follow his voice. I need to hear his voice. So today we'll see that the problem with those who don't follow his voice, the reason they don't believe him, Jesus says, it's because you're not my sheep. You're not my sheep. And there will be those who will wrestle and grapple with the word of God to some degree. But Jesus says, you're not my sheep. That's why you don't believe the truth about me. This morning, we'll see that the one good shepherd leads, saves, and separates his sheep with his word so that we will listen, follow, and obey his word. We call it orthopraxy. There's orthodoxy, there's orthopraxy. Orthodoxy deals with doxology. It deals with truth credited to God in our worship of him. Orthopraxy is truth that we practice. So we call it orthopraxy when we look at sound doctrine and we see that the necessary response to sound doctrine of the person who believes that doctrine is that he separates his life from the world. He confesses his sin. He's quick to be honest about his failures, his weaknesses. The precise opposite of that is the person who hides his iniquities. He attempts to cover them because they are not covered. They need to be covered. All sin must be covered. All sin will be covered in one way or another. If your sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb, let's not leave that metaphor to be some sort of mystical, ethereal, non-understandable issue. To be covered by the blood of Christ, for your sins to be covered by the blood of the Lamb, means that the death of Christ established forgiveness. It established atonement. And you know that forgiveness and you know that atonement not because of a feeling, not because of something you did, not because of a prayer you prayed. You know that because you have an urgent passion for righteousness. You are far, far more committed to exposing your own sin than trying to fabricate that of others. As you see with the Pharisees, the orthopraxy resulted in them demeaning, insulting, reviling, really slandering, really making stuff up about Jesus. That's what the false convert does. He does everything within his power to lie, deceive, and undermine the credibility of the faithful, true messenger. Why? Because the faithful, true messenger brings truth. The false convert hates truth, even though he wants to be known as a person who loves truth. That's the Pharisees. That's the Pharisees. That was you, and that was me. Such were some of us. Well, let's read this text together, and let's walk through it, trusting the Lord to give us Humility and wisdom and passion to obey it. 
Verse 16 of John 10. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. May the Lord honor the purity and the reality of what he has said. Let me just tell you that John 10 is one of the most hated chapters in all the Bible. Why? Because it displays the reality that Jesus died for his sheep. So it's not only one of the most hated chapters in the Bible, it's one of the most attacked and abused and misused. We want to be faithful. We've read what it says. You saw it last week. Jesus died for the sheep. People don't become sheep. They're either sheep or they're not sheep. Jesus died for them all. Some are lost sheep. There are always going to be lost sheep until eternity. Eternity, all the lost sheep will have been found. Every last one. As I said this morning, we'll see that the one good shepherd leads, saves, and separates his sheep with his word so that we will listen, follow, and obey his word. It's like when a baby follows the milk. It's not at all unusual for a three-year-old little girl to walk into my bedroom in the middle of the night and say, milk. And so we give her milk. We also know that giving her that is going to provide growth for her. A little one, a tiny one, absolutely has to have its mother's milk so as to grow. It longs for it. It needs it. It's desperate for it. The good shepherd draws his sheep to him in the same way that a little one is drawn to pure milk. Point number one from our text here, the one good shepherd by his voice. Now stop there. You can see I've broken this outline up a little bit differently from how we normally do. And I, I went back and forth and back and forth. I ran it by Kimberly. What do you think? And so this is all her fault. Um, the one good shepherd, Scripture, you'll see that in a moment, how that works. A, will lead and save all the sheep. He'll lead and save all the sheep. Look at it. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Now, this is a significant theological issue. Early on in Jesus' ministry, his focus was on Israel. Matthew 10, 5 to 6, says these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this particular group 
was among Israel. It was not Israel entirely. It was a fold within the whole of the nation of Israel. Matthew 15, 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So initially, this is where his ministry was spent. Uh, those converted at Pentecost were Jews. In Acts 2, verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Peter was initially ministering to the Jews, but then Peter takes the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts 10, verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. You believe that? God shows no partiality. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Verse 37, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead." And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He is not the Lord of the Jews. He's the Lord of the nations. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas took the gospel to the Roman Empire Acts 18, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. They were looking for the Christ, the Greek term for the Hebrew word Messiah. He's saying, he's here. This Jesus you've been hearing about, that's him. Verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Can you imagine? Gentile living next door to the synagogue. Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. What city was this? Corinth. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That was the establishment of that wretched church to whom we have two of four letters. 
people that Paul chastised time and time again, but he called them believers. 18 months that he spent shepherding them led him to the credibility to be able to correct them and to lead them unto faithfulness. Galatians 2, verse 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, right, Gentiles and Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we would go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So this is an ongoing reality. It is not simply that Christ came to his own, John 1, 11, and they rejected him, and so he went on to the Gentiles. There will yet be Jews and Gentiles saved until and even after the Lord returns. Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe, every people, every language, every nation, not just the Jews, but from every place, every nation, every tongue, every tribe. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. So yes, they've attained it. Verse 31. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? See, this is so important. Paul here really explodes the tradition of the non-believing Jews. They rested in their blood and their lineage. Paul says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. This is why Jesus has said, the flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. What are works? Anything and everything except for faith. Anything and everything you might do except for exercising faith is works. Anything outside the pale of belief, trust. He says, uh, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. You know, First Peter. Peter talks about Jesus being the stone. For some, it's the rock. It's the foundation and for others, the more they hear truth, the more they stumble over it and attempt to redefine it and make it something it's not. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See, the deeper you get, and we've seen this throughout John, John 5, John 6 especially, the deeper we get into the realities of what Jesus is saying, the more impossible it is for the disbeliever, the one who intentionally disbelieves these truths, to believe them. He hardens his heart. God adds to that with further hardening his heart. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a glorious reality, isn't it? That ought to be on your refrigerator. <laughs> Amen. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, 
will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. See, that's the heart of the person who truly, truly believes the truths about God. He doesn't know who the elect are. Paul didn't know. He longed for every Jew, every biological brother, to be redeemed. And that was his prayer. That's the heart attitude of the one who trusts in a sovereign, gracious God. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Do you know, do you know that person? He's got some sort of zeal that kind of pops up here and there, and other things pop up here and there. But there's this seeming sincere zeal, at least from time to time. But he's got no knowledge because he's not really interested in it. He loves what he believes. Sunk deep in it. Paul's heart for that person is not one of condescension or arrogant dismissal. It's a willingness to pray for that soul. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God. You know who's ignorant of the righteousness of God? It is the person who lives in unrighteousness and professes to know the Lord. That's the person who's ignorant of the righteousness of God. It's not like he hasn't read it. It's not like he hasn't heard it from the pulpit. But he's got a hidden life. And his iPhone is his best friend. Because all he's got to do is find a place where nobody can see the screen. Bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They created a righteousness into which they fit quite nicely. They redefined God, slip into that, I'm good. Anybody else who doesn't really agree with what I say probably is whacked. Probably didn't know what he's talking about. For Christ, this should be so important to us. For Christ, verse 4 in Romans 10, if you forgot where we were. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If anybody truly believes, they lean on Christ. They rest in him. Challenge the person who doesn't really rest in him, guaranteed, guaranteed at some point in the conversation, they'll start listing their spiritual resume. Guaranteed. It's always the result of the person who doesn't legitimately rest in Christ. Listen to this from Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? See, he's still, Paul, Paul's here dealing with the theology of the Jews and the Gentiles. What happened? You know, how did this come about? But I, uh, uh, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. 
With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. That cuts at the heart of a man-made theology, doesn't it? It kind of just destroys it all at once. Let's move on. Can we get past that? I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Can we stop pretending, you know, that we somehow brought ourselves to Christ? But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Remember what we're talking about here, right? There are two folds. One flock. Two folds. Has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened for so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And this is a magnificent expression of the dual reality of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Do you you not see that God has chosen some? Do you not see that man, Israel in particular, in his rejection of the Lord, precedes Christ's movement on to the Gentiles? It's all sovereignly decreed, but this is how he intended for it to play out. And so it's very important for you and me to not only kind of get used to the reality that God has created a stage play in which you and I play significant roles and we can increasingly experience the blessings of trusting him. It's not that we ought to get used to it. We must enjoy this. We must rest in this. 
We must find great exuberance in the reality that our God of sovereign grace has enabled us to be somehow involved in his providence that we would store up treasure in heaven. We must do so by following the good shepherd. Romans 9, 6 says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. See that? Right back to God's sovereignty. The word of God didn't fail. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring Acts 2.39 says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's who the promise is for. Everyone, every single person the Lord calls unto himself. Every single person that the Father gives to the Son. Acts 13.46 with Paul and Barnabas being in Antioch, it says, they spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That's a sarcastic way of saying the offer of eternal life was there and you rejected it for earning it yourself. Verse 47, for the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You know, this is why we are so heavily involved in missions throughout the world. This is why we invest in Croatia and in Malawi and in Madagascar and in South Africa. This is where our hearts are. We are convinced that God will save people throughout the world, and he is doing it. He is doing it. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. This always happens to people who speak truth. Always. There will always be those who will slander and undermine and attempt to do away with those who speak truth. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See, in opposition, not just, not just when things are good, but in opposition, when having proclaimed truth, one is persecuted, persecuted he still walks with the joy of the Lord. He still walks with the joy of the Lord because he knows God will save Jews and Gentiles. He knows he will, and he knows he may be useful if he will be faithful. John 1.11, I mentioned it earlier. Uh, he, uh, John 1.10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood. That's, that's the whole Jewish thing. You know, just because you're a Jew, it's not your blood. Not all 
Israel is Israel. Not all sons of Abraham are sons of Abraham. Nor the will of the flesh. That's kind of obvious. The flesh is no help at all, Jesus had already said. Nor the will of man, but of God. But of God. In John 4, it was a Samaritan woman to whom he granted belief. And in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Can you imagine? Think of this. Can you imagine rejoicing because somebody confronted you over your sin? Is that what you do? See, that's what the Samaritan woman, elect of God, did. She was pleased that Jesus put her sin on display. He granted her repentance and belief. That's how the repentant, humble, believing person responds. He or she longs to be corrected. The person who has a pattern of rejecting correction, that's just not a Christian in anybody's world. Not realistically. Now you remember back in verse 4 of this chapter, John 10, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before him and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. And that's what we're talking about here. The one good shepherd by his voice will lead and save all the sheep. But God so loved the world, right? God so loved the world, not just the Jews, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. By faith. Matthew 15, 22. Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. She's not of the house of Israel. Lord, help me. She doesn't come demanding. She doesn't come insisting. You know, if you pray some sort of fabricated sinner's prayer, Lord, you owe me because I prayed the prayer. I said the words. But she came and knelt posture of humility before him, saying, Lord, help me. You know, this is supplication. This is what we call supplication. Philippians 4. It's a willingness to cry out to someone who, know, who you know can meet your need. That's what she did. She had seen that he could meet her need. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Gentiles were dogs. Jesus is playing this whole thing out. 
In one sense, the Jews were the elect people of God. Gentiles were dirty. Why? Because they had rejected God. Interesting metaphor, isn't it? You say, doesn't seem real sensitive to a gal whose daughter is dying and is pleading for help. But he wanted to be clear. He needed to be clear. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You might have thought he was saying, Israel are the children. Why would I throw their bread to the dogs? Meaning you, you Syrophoenician woman, you Canaanite. She said, yes, Lord. I mean, she agreed. Yes, Lord, I'm with you. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is not a Jew. Child of the promise. To one who is willing to take crumbs. And whatever access you have to the Word of God, and in our day, it's pretty significant. You can harness an entire Bible in a matter of seconds on an electronic device. Do you pick up the crumbs? You know how it is when you're eating a great meal, and somehow or another, I've never understood this, but eating just that one little tiny bit of food off to the side is every bit as good as the full bite that I just took? Is that how you value the Word of God? Do you pick up the crumbs? Do you lick the plate? My kids almost always lick the plate. We let them do that, by the way. If you come over, sorry. Kimberly's a pretty good cook. You'll want to lick the plate. The Lord prepares a meal. His word nourishes us. It's all that we need. She was willing to take the crumbs, and he said to her, woman, your faith is it's great. You get it. You understand. It's not about your doing. It's not about your works. It's not about your prayer. It's not about your choosing. It's complete rest, even if she only were to have crumbs. Well, let her be. The one good shepherd by his voice will be heard and followed by all the sheep. You see it? They will listen to my voice, not just this fold, but that fold. Not just the Jews, but the Gentiles who are my sheep, they will hear his voice. Go back to verse 2 in your Bible, John 10, 2. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. 
This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. And this is what happens when either a non-sheep or a lost sheep hears this truth. He just doesn't understand it. He continues to persistently, passionately, and even dramatically refuse it and reject it, twist it, make it say something it's not saying. But a sheep, a found sheep, he says, this is hard, but it's soothing. It soothes me to know that the one good shepherd will collect all of his sheep. It's not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon me. Further in this chapter, and we'll look at this in the future, verse 26 You ready for this? But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. That's some heavy theology, friends. It's the truth. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The shepherd knows his sheep, and the sheep know their shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so we've referred to him as the one good shepherd. Further in verse 16, he says, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Now, if you have the King James Version, I've got bad news for you. It's translated wrong, and that is because of its dependence upon the Latin Vulgate, which has problems. Now, we still believe the King James Bible is the Bible, but there are problems. This is one major problem because it translates one flock as one fold. There's not one fold, there are two folds, and if you're really going to look at it closely, there's many folds. We're a fold. But there is one flock, not one fold. There's one flock, one shepherd. Everyone within that flock follows the shepherd's voice. This is why we say the Pope is not even a Christian. He calls himself the head of the church. Well, he's wrong for so many reasons, but primarily because of a false soteriology, believing that it is faith plus works by which a person is redeemed. That's not a whole lot different from any other man-made theology. So he rests on what he has done, not ultimately on what Christ has done. Two folds, one flock, one shepherd. Jesus doesn't share that role with anyone, not with anyone. And how is this? It's because of his authority. It's because of his authority. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. 
What exactly did Jesus do in collecting his sheep? That he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. He doesn't say he lays down his life for anyone else. I lay down my life for the sheep. I love this little book. Uh, I recommend you get it. It's called The Jesus Answer Book by John MacArthur. Taking my older two boys through this. One, one of them is almost all the way through it. It's just a Christology. It just deals with the person and the work of Christ. From a human perspective, it's important that we understand what crucifixion is. That the one true shepherd would die for his sheep. There's a section called, Is Death by Crucifixion Often Death by Asphyxiation? Lack of oxygen is definitely a key contributor to death on a cross. Truman Davis, a medical doctor who studied the physical effects of crucifixion, described how Jesus would have died from lack of oxygen. And this is after having spikes driven through the wrists and the feet, with a spike driven probably through both feet at the same time. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. As Jesus hangs by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward and to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber, then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluid has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air. MacArthur goes on to say, once strength or feeling in the legs was gone, the victim would be unable to push up in order to breathe, and death would occur quickly. That is why the Romans sometimes practiced crucifracture, the breaking of the legs below the knees, when they wanted to hasten the process. Dehydration, hypovolemic shock, and congestive heart failure sometimes hasten death as well. In Jesus' case, it seems likely that acute exhaustion was probably another contributing factor. When the one true shepherd leads his sheep, it is because he has accomplished their forgiveness in his death. What he underwent physically is horrific. It's nearly beyond comprehension. We forget it far too easily. But on the other hand, we might overemphasize it if we forget the whole point. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in 
him. Taking on our sin, he bore the punishment that you and I deserve. What I just read to you is tantamount to what we deserve, but that it would be eternal. But it was the punishment of being separated from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, he said. The answer to that question is because he loves his sheep. And so the one good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. But as I said to you earlier, he didn't stay dead. Our text says, For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. He did that on his authority. The book of Acts, chapter 2 and chapter 4, both tell us that it is God's sovereign decree, his predestined plan, that those who nailed him across would do so, and yet they are completely culpable. How then could you or I complain about anything that we undergo because we refuse to believe that it is God's sovereign decree? And that's what really is behind an attempt to destroy that theology, the idea that God is actually sovereign. God couldn't possibly be behind my difficulty. If he would crush his son, his sinless son, and it would please him to do so, then certainly you and I can and should experience some crushing along the way. Why? Because that's how refinement works. That's how we are molded into his image. That's how we are brought into the place of acknowledging that no matter what we experience, it pales in comparison to what he underwent. It's not to belittle or diminish the significance of whatever difficulties you're bearing up under. They might be, and in many cases certainly are, very, very real, very painful, in some cases inexplicable. It's difficult for you to trace them back to anything reasonable. But what you and I must be asking is, are we following his voice? Are we truly engaged in obedience to his word in such a way that it displays his remarkable greatness. That we would be known to be faithful because he is faithful. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? You must not stop at his death. Because just as was prophesied in Scripture, he laid down his life for the sheep. He rose again for the sheep. That is why we are here today. That is why we are here every Lord's Day. We rest in the truth that he conquered death, the death that you and I deserve because of sin, which also he conquered. And you can be certain that if you are not showing yourself to be a sheep, that legitimately and affirmably by other sheep are following his voice, obeying his word. If you are not affirmably by other sheep doing so, you can be certain that at this very moment you have no reason to believe you are one of his sheep. And yet at the same time, he's made it clear, if you will call upon the name of the Lord, he will save you. 
And that does not mean uttering the five-letter word Jesus. It's not what that means. It means resting in him, in his atoning death, and in his new life-giving resurrection. What is the gospel? According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, it is the obedient life of the Savior. It is the obedient death of the Savior that atoned for our sins. And it is the authoritative resurrection of the Savior that displayed power over that sin. Why would you reject that? How could you possibly be willing to stake your life and your eternity on anything other than precisely what he accomplished. And beloved, if your life can't be affirmed by sheep who are faithfully listening to the voice of the one true shepherd, you must repent of that today and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you will, if you will genuinely submit and subject yourself to the truth of his kind and gracious love, he will save you, and he will grant you eternal life. Father, we praise you because of your son. We thank you that we are the sheep of your hand. You blessed us with so much kindness told us that our shepherd died specifically for the sheep. The sheep will hear his voice. So Lord, help us even this morning as we acknowledge and we rest in the great joy that it is to know that he leads and saves his sheep, not just Israel, not just the Gentiles, but people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, As we rest in that, Father, we ask that you would help us this morning to hear the voice of our shepherd and that we as faithful sheep would follow him who is faithful. It's in his name we pray. Amen.